You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, when you leave today, I'll have on the edge of the stage here, uh, I printed out uh, a copy of that sort of prayer thing I read to you last week, the Fellowship of the Unashamed. So if you want one of these, you're certainly free to take one. Um, So they'll be there at the end of the stage. Let's pray together. And uh, I have hopelessly too much material to cover. I know you can't tell by the note sheet that you have, but remember that's that's just merely a a guideline. So um, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, thank you that uh, you have allowed us to, to breathe again, to wake up, to see something else today that you want to do in our lives. It's a humbling, it's a humbling matter to know that you are the one who gives life. Uh, you are the one who decides. You are the, uh, the sustainer and that you have a plan for us. And I pray that as we start this day with you, we would be reminded of how important it is for us to seek you and what it means for us. And just open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, specifically from the book of Hebrews. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's make our way to Hebrews and um, see if we can make it past chapter 2 today. I think I told you the last time we were together, maybe the time before that, my intention was not, in my original slot, my original uh, assignment was about six or seven weeks with you guys, and and then we'd rotate, and my intention was to really just fly over Hebrews with you, Um, so I've changed that. I'm going to basically, every time I'm with you until we get done with Hebrews, we'll just make our way through it, so I'll come back. Uh, after when I'm up again to pitch, and uh, we'll just start throwing Hebrews back at you again uh, until we get through all 13 chapters. If that's May, that's May, uh, and we'll we'll make our way through that. So anyways, I hope you guys, every time we meet, leave with a couple of things. I hope you leave with a, uh, a better understanding of the scriptures we study. I hope you leave with a, a better understanding of how to apply the scriptures to your life. And I hope you leave with a better understanding of what it means for you to lead in your daily environment. God knows, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean that seriously, we suffer from an almost unforgivable lack of leadership uh, in this nation as a whole. And so your role as a leader in your everyday life is critical. So I hope you're, uh, you're stepping up to that plate. Well, let's go to, um, let's go to chapter 2, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to almost almost just go verse by verse by verse. What you have in front of you, you probably just maybe use the, the white spaces to write in, uh, maybe add a few notes to or turn your paper over and we'll, we'll give you some notes. Uh, but as we move into chapter, really into chapter three and chapter four, we'll slow down even more than I've been slow already. But I remember the first time that this passage through chapter four became transformative in my life. And I was in junior high. I was either in the sixth grade or the seventh grade. And you've heard me mention a gentleman by the name of Manly Beasley before. And I remember sitting in church 
listening to him preach out of Hebrews 3 and 4. And he was preaching about the rest that God has called us into. And I distinctively remember sitting there and just, it was actually an old-fashioned uh, church revival that nobody was attending at that time. And uh, so there was no revival, I guess. We didn't extend it past Wednesday night. But he, uh, he was speaking and I was just locked in. And, you know, at that age, you don't necessarily expect something to be that transformative, but it was. I remember one particular time when he was preaching through this passage. I don't remember what night of the week it was. I remember it being an evening. And I remember him leaning over the pulpit, which is funny. There's a number of things that I do when I preach that are exactly what I grew up watching. And so he leaned over that pulpit and he said to the crowd, he put his hand on his ear and he said, you are hard to hear tonight. And that was a church about the size of Stonegate Fellowship, which now on Easter is hoping they have 300 people. And, and that, that is part of my history that always sort of uh, forms my definition of leadership. But also when I get to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, uh, it'll, I'll give you some more information about that. But that was a long time ago. Let's pick up in chapter 2 verse 1. And as I placed in your notes, if you've been keeping the notes I've handed you, We're still on this whole overview of the first five chapters being a discussion about the superiority of Jesus and then this this promised rest that we'll get to. Letter A tells you he is superior in his substitution, suffering, and salvation secured and offered. Now I have a little parenthetical warning here. in In your notes it says an inserted warning. So let's read chapter two, verse one. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, that word that's used for drift away, and I hope you understand, and I hope this isn't too technical. I don't think it is. A lot of times, English words, it takes a couple of English words to translate one Greek word. And this is another one of those cases. And that word, drift away, actually is a word that means, and I wrote it in my note here, it's the only usage that in the Scripture. This is the only time that word is used, and it means to forfeit, or, or it actually means, and I, and I wrote it right here, it means to glide away from. And, and so when he says, we've got to pay attention to this so that we don't drift away from this, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, now it's my conviction He's right there referring to everything leading up to the new covenant in Jesus. But if you keep reading in verse 3, he said, How are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, just showed you a message that began from creation, but led to Bethlehem and the cross and the resurrection. And what he outlines for you in verse 4 is what happens in the book of Acts. Okay, And what happened in the book of Acts, and, and I think I've told you this before, I didn't intend to write this on the whiteboard, but I'll do it anyways. If you watch the book of Acts, he just outlined for you here, Acts begins in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 with this, you shall be my witnesses and you shall go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. 
What happens through the book of Acts is you travel through the expansion of the gospel. And if you'll read through the book of Acts very carefully, you'll see signs, you'll see tongues. And with the possible exception of one time in the book of Acts, every time you see tongues, it is in order to display that the Holy Spirit has shown up to an unreached people group. Okay? So uh, that's a whole other debatable issue. In fact, be very cautious of theology that is solely based in the book of Acts. And then you get to chapter 8 and 9, and you see Saul become Paul when the Lord Jesus changes his life. And from that point on, in chapters 11 and 13, you see the gospel move to a place called Antioch. Actually, Antioch is the launching place of the modern-day church, not really, in this case, Jerusalem. Antioch is where most of the missionary work centers from. In fact, most of the controversy related to the spread of the gospel goes back to church leaders in Jerusalem who can't understand why the Lord's reaching Gentiles. And then, from, 11, from chapter 13 on, this becomes Paul's missionary base, Antioch. And the guy that went to find Paul is a guy named Barnabas. Think about that. Think about the fact that the, probably the life calling in Barnabas was to go find the guy who would do something greater. That, that Barnabas was a man who knew, you know what? There's a guy named Paul that nobody trusts, but I think God wants to go use him. And Barnabas went to go find Paul, who was hiding out in a place called Tarsus, most likely, up in Asia Minor. And Barnabas, because the church won't have anything to do with Paul. I mean, you can understand why. I mean, uh, it, it, it'd be like if he were still alive, if all of a sudden Osama bin Laden said, I found Jesus. And the Lord said, I'm gonna use him. And the church said, no, you're not. And, and that's what they did here. So they go find Paul, the elders lay their hands on Paul. And from that point on through the rest of the book of Acts and what you see tapering off throughout the book of Acts is signs and wonders. Because as soon as the church finds its way into Philippi, is when you see it moving into Europe. And as soon as the gospel makes its move over into Europe, you see Gentiles beginning to be reached and you see the gospel firmly established in Gentile hearts. And so he's not proving it anymore through the giving of the Holy Spirit. In fact, most of the time when the Holy Spirit shows up in the early chapters of the book of Acts, the demonstration of signs and wonders is not necessarily just for the Gentiles to see it, but it's for the Jewish Christians to see that Jesus has shown up among the Gentiles. And then after that, once you get past the book of Acts, you don't see this stuff taking place hardly at all. Now, am I saying that Jesus doesn't do miracles? No, but I am saying in our modern day environment, we are so caught up in miracles that the reason we don't see miracles is the same reason that Jesus told the Pharisees, you guys won't see miracles because it won't change the way you see things. You just want the Lord Jesus to prove something to you. And uh, he's, he's not gonna succumb to proving something to you. Blessed are those who, who believe and yet have not seen. I tell you all that because that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's telling you in verse four what happened in the book of Acts. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That whole issue of gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's the word grace. Okay, that, that word gift 
is where we get our word grace, charisma or charismata. It's the word grace, which grace is God's unmerited favor, but it is also his unmerited and abundant supply for the need of the moment. That's why if if you're not careful, we abuse gifts of the spirit in our church culture. You've heard me talk about this, but we've made gifts of the spirit a reason to not do things rather than gifts of the spirit to be an open door to see God do things through us, we would have never been able to do. What I mean by that is you see people take spiritual gift inventories. Some of you have never done that. If you've never met a spiritual gifts inventory, do not meet one, okay? Because typically all it does is keep you from doing things you might, want, might need to do. Well, what you see, and this happened pretty much in the, in the 90s quite a bit, people take spiritual gift inventories and they go, well, my gift is teaching. And this is, how, this is how it manifests itself in the church. They go up to walk up to the preacher and say, you know, Brother, Brother Peyton, um, my spiritual gift is teaching. And so I want to know if I join your church, am I going to get to teach? To which I typically reply, would anybody like to guess what my reply is? No. You need to go see Hank and work in the parking lot. And the, and the reason for that is not because the parking lot is where you need to just leave but it's because oftentimes when you come to me with your gift, you're not coming to me in the humility of your gift. You're coming to me wanting to exercise your gift in front of people and you want a crowd. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, my gift is just to get underneath people and let them just walk on me and serve them. You never hear that. But that was Jesus. People always want to talk about this high and exalted gift rather than how can I get underneath and serve and, and, and oftentimes we forget that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not something that make much of me, but actually they're a gift that is typically outside of how I would operate because it requires grace for my gift to function. For instance, what if I told you my gift, one of my gifts is mercy? Now, you laugh, but the fact of the matter is, I would argue it is a greater confession of a gift that requires the Holy Spirit to work through me. But it's easy for me to take an inventory and stand in front of you and say, my gift is teaching. Because I can teach and it not necessarily be scriptural. And it not necessarily be of the Holy Spirit. But I cannot mercy unless I am graced. You understand what I'm talking about? Don't take an inventory and go, that is me. I can't wait till the church discovers that. I had someone come up to me Sunday and uh, it was a gracious confrontation. And, and, and we, we were having this problem in church of people getting up all the time and leaving and, and you know, coming back. They go to our concession stand and they come back and they, um, you know, it's just like a movie theater. It's worse. And finally, I'm like, dear God, I mean, open up the aisle and let the earth swallow them or something. And, I, and so finally, um, David McReynolds gets up and, and he's the best person to get on to people. Have you ever seen David get mad? I mean, he's like apologizes the whole time. And, and so he's gonna be the bad guy. And he's the best bad guy I've ever seen, most gracious bad guy. And he gets up and he's telling everybody, you know, hey, we just appreciate it if... You can, he's struggling just to say it. He's just, we just, we just, don't get up. Um, 
And what he wanted to say was, don't get up because Patrick will blow a gasket, is what he wanted to say. And, and, and so in the second service, he said, if you get up and leave and you come back, would you just sit in the back? So I had this person come up to me and tell me, you know, I don't want to go to a church that tells me where to sit. And, and I said, that's fine. Um, and, and, and I said, I, I take it, we had a short little conversation. And, and I said, I, from our conversation, it appears to me that you've been in church a long time. Yes, I have. And I said, then good, because we're going to talk like church people. Um, I said, what you're telling me is what your freedom to get up and move about is more important to you than someone who's never heard the gospel being distracted by you getting up and leaving. Well, I, I, wasn't, I didn't go across as well as I wanted it to. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I said, um, so then I was informed of how all the other churches in the community don't do what we do, to which I responded, I don't care. And with a smile, I mean, it was, it was service. And, and so finally, I just, it, it, here's, what, here's what I'm getting at. In this whole area of gifts, and when we kind of get inside the church, the people that are oftentimes the worst to deal with are people who have been in church the longest, who have become people of privilege rather than people of service. And so when you read something about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, before you start trying to figure out your gift, Maybe start praying about it in the sense of grace. God, I need your unmerited supply so the Holy Spirit is seen through me. Guys, I could teach and you think the Holy Spirit is in me just because I'm a good teacher. But I can't love you and grace you and mercy you unless the Holy Spirit does something through me. Because I'm more predisposed to just not want to be around you. You see the difference? And some of you have great talents. Do not mistake your talent for a gift of the Holy Spirit. Do not mistake your ability for a gift of the Holy Spirit. Because where God might be pushing in is exactly where you might be pushing away. Where God might be trying to do something through you, you might be trying to push him out the door. So be careful with that. You know, we're, it's going to take two years to get through this book. So let's go to verse 5. From... From verse 5 through chapter 3, verse 6, I've listed for you in your notes, for the ease of our conversation, five things that are identified about who Jesus is. And so, as you look at your notes very quickly, we see that Jesus, you will see as we read through this, that Jesus is our perfect substitution. He identifies with us perfectly. He suffers for us perfectly. And he sets us apart. And he has been set apart. He's, he gives us a perfect deliverance, a perfect mediator, and perfect faithfulness. Now, some of these, these are all drawn out of chapter 2, verse 5, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. They're not in any necessary order, but let me just begin reading in verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, this world of which we are speaking. Indeed, it has been testified somewhere. And he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. Interesting quote here. Because in this quote in Psalm chapter 8, and what the writer of Hebrews does, is he, he associates... Bishop, I didn't see you over there. How you doing? Good to see you. Bishop Taban from southern Sudan. One of the most important men in the world. It's great to have you. If I'd have known you were going to be here, I'd have had you teach, brother. So, man, you guys are getting gypped. So here we go. When you, when you look at this quote... When you read it in Psalm chapter 8, here's, what's, here's, here's where you begin to see Jesus throughout the scriptures. 
In Psalm chapter eight, he's telling us in this quote how you and I have been created a little lower than the angels and he has given us dominion. But in in Hebrews chapter two, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the humanity of Jesus. Now what he does is he helps us to see that in our humanity, this is why Jesus is able to be a perfect identifier and a perfect mediator. He's showing us that he shared in our humanity, but without sin. So the writer of Hebrews is tying these things together. He says, what is man? He quotes Psalm chapter eight, that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. Interestingly enough, some of you know this, son of man was Jesus's favorite reference to himself. It's used over 400 times. Verse seven, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, Now he starts to address some of the reality of what we see. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing. I know it's Jesus, the word is not there, but I'm just helping you read through the pronouns. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside the control of Jesus. Now, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Same reality we share. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that is Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And here's one of the most amazing phrases in these first two chapters. So that by the unmerited favor of God, that is grace, Jesus might taste death for everyone. And literally from this point on, the writer begins to shift gears and even tell us more and more about this tasting of death for us. Now verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom, now watch what happens here because if you're not careful in your reading, you'll miss that he's talking about God the Father. So he says, for it was fitting that God the Father for whom and by whom all things exist. Now, your, your theology of the Godhead just took a huge step forward right there. Because what the writer of Hebrews did is he just equated Jesus, God the Son, with God the Father. And the way he did that is if you're paying attention, when you read in chapter 1, the first four chap- verses, and we talked about Jesus being the agent of creation, what happened here in chapter 2, verse 10, is he, he joined the creator as God the Father and God the Son. He made them co-equal in their station by the way he discussed them. If you're not careful, guys, that's why pronouns are so important. Pronouns and prepositions, I know you let that go in high school, but pronouns and prepositions weigh theology down. Okay? In fact, theology oftentimes can be determined by your prepositions. If you're not careful, you'll miss it because here we are paying attention to who Jesus is. And if you said this, verse 10, For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation. It breaks down through suffering. So go back, because I want to make sure you're clear on this. Let me read verse 10, and I'll clarify for you. For it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in his bringing many sons to glory. Now, remember your, your Romans verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the what of God? 
the glory. If you didn't know that verse, you're not a failure of a Christian, okay? Just the rest of us grew up with flannel graft. And so when, you, when he says he's bringing sons to glory, that's our salvation is bringing us back into the experience of the perfection of the attributes of God and the joy we were meant to know in creation. So when he says it was fitting that the creator, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons back to glory, that he should make the founder, and let me give you a few words for the word founder, the leader, the prince, or the prime author. All those words work. They, so that he should make the leader, the prince, the prime author, and the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Another writer in the scriptures says, we should count it a privilege that just as Jesus suffered, so shall who? We. So he has, he has given us an example. Our creator, through the Son, through God the Son, bringing us to the experience of the glory of God, made a demonstration out of our founder, out of our leader. The writer calls it the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus, was made perfect through suffering. Now verse 11, for he who makes holy, that is sanctifies, he who sets apart and makes holy, and those who are set apart and made holy all have one source. That is why, well watch it turn here, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now he's gonna quote Psalm 22 again. Before I read that passage, Psalm 22 is an interesting psalm. There's a, there's a phrase in Psalm 22 that Jesus utters on the cross. So let's look at it real quick because it's interesting that he uses this. Go all the way to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Every time you read references in the, Old, in the New Testament that refer you back to the Old Testament, you're, you're cheating your Bible study if you don't go see it in the Old, in the Old Testament, okay? Even if it slows you down, please, 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 if this helps you, let me give you permission. It would be better for you to read five verses and meditate on them than five chapters and just say you read five chapters. Okay, just to be so much better. You're not gonna get to heaven and God go, you know, you, I remember when you tried to read through the Bible in 2011, it didn't work so good. We were really disappointed. It's not, it's not gonna happen, okay? It's just not gonna happen. So in Psalm 22, look at verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? It should. He utters this on the cross when he pays our price. So when you get to the book of Hebrews, hope you didn't lose your place. Out of that same chapter, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the one who was made perfect through suffering calls us his brothers. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the gathering of people, I will sing your praise. And then again, I'll put my trust in him. I mean, the writer of Hebrews is pulling this whole thing together and showing you the magnificence and the completion of God's plan. And he has, he has perfected through suffering this author and leader and prince of our salvation. The one who said, my God, my God, what are you doing? Why have you forsaken me? Now calls you and I brothers. And as we continue through this, we'll see that he is our mediator. As I put in your notes, a perfect mediator. 
I'll keep reading verse 13. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's a book of Isaiah quote. Now let's pick up in verse 14. We read these last week, but golly, these are such amazing verses. Since therefore the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood. Now remember, I just told you in chapter 2, this this quote out of Psalm 8, how we we should have a shared humanity. But remember, where, where it changes is we don't have a shared deity. So don't sit there and go, yeah, man, I mean, like, like me and Jesus, we're exactly like, no, you're not, no, you're not. Um, let me just remind you, no, we're not. And, and, but he's telling us later on when he says, Jesus understands what it is to be tried and tested. It's because he, he, he had flesh and blood and he came against tests and trials yet without sin. Verse 14, since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy. Now, let me give you a definition of destroy, okay? And when you see me up here turning my Bible, I know for some of you, you can't do this, but I hope most of you will, will, will write in your Bibles. I, you know, I, there's a real, the real reason I do it, and you've heard me say it a hundred times, is so when I die and my kids grab my shelf of Bibles, they will see my spiritual journey, okay? And, and so, anyways, that's another deal. Here, let me give you a definition for destroy, to render useless and powerless. You're going to want to know this definition when we read the rest of this paragraph. To destroy is to render useless and powerless and unprofitable. It does not mean to wipe away. It means to render useless and powerless. Now that's important because look at the rest of the passage. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 again. We'll keep trying to move this engine together. So the children share in flesh and blood. He likewise partook of the same things, that through death, that is our death that he died, that through death he might, I'll read it this way, render useless and powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Okay, you got to see another passage. Keep your place in Hebrews, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, it's the chapter I preach from every Easter. So if you, if you skip services this Easter, that's where I'm going to preach, is 1 Corinthians 15. You say, why don't you preach from the resurrection chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? This is the resurrection chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells you, if there is no resurrection, quit this thing called Christianity. It's a joke. That's what he says. You can read it. I mean, in, in, in reality, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then dude, let's, let's go join a frat. I mean, he, he just says, get it on. And, and there are people who say, oh, no, 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 no. We should, we should still live good moral lives. Paul says, for what purpose? I mean, he, he's outlining to you in 1 Corinthians 15 that the basis of all functions of life that bring meaning to it and purpose to it are founded and restored and made meaningful in the resurrection. If anybody ever tells you that, that they believe in Jesus but they do not believe in the resurrection, they cannot be 
a Christian. They cannot. They can say, well, I believe that a great guy named Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but a crucifixion and a resurrection, I cannot believe, but I'm a follower of Jesus. No, you're not. You're a follower of a sage, but not a savior. It is critical. But anyways, that's another day. So the last couple of verses in chapter 15, look with me in verse 54. What are we referencing? We're referencing that Jesus rendered useless and powerless the one who had the power of death. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You see, death reminds us that we're broken. And, but that's why, I don't, that's why when, you, when you rejoice at a funeral, as, at a follower of Jesus whose eternity is in heaven, that, that is just a, a transition. The greater victory is that the fear of death is gone. And the power of sin is some kind of law that gives rise to this stuff in us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So go back to your place in Hebrews and see again how this ties together. That the writer of Hebrews is telling us that this captivity we have, this fear we have, this death that we face has been rendered useless and powerless. The enemy no longer has power except the power you allow him to have, which will come up in the next few verses through deception. The enemy, if you're a follower of Jesus, the only power the enemy can have over you is to deceive you. That's all he can do. He can only deceive you, but he can deceive you enough to miss blessings. He can deceive you enough to miss, and I'll use this word, the best you could have known. And so let's keep reading. Verse 16. Surely it isn't angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. As we learned in our study of Romans, that's us. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Those are big words, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now watch this in verse 18. I'm gonna try to make sure that I wrote it down for you. Let me read verse 18. For because he himself has suffered, and the word for suffered is where you, if you've ever heard the word the paschal lamb or the, this, this suffering of Jesus, that's the word right there. For because he himself has suffered when, now I'm gonna to read to you a few words, because he has suffered when tempted or when he was affected or proven. Hang on to it, okay? Just walk with me here. For because Jesus suffered when he was proved and tried and tested, he is able to help those who are being proved and tried and tested. Now, some of you guys who know the Bible a little better than others, you already know where I'm probably taking you, but it's right next door to Hebrews to the right, and it's James chapter one. The same exact word for tempting is the word used here in James. 
So you look at James chapter one, find your way to verse two. While you're looking at verse two, let me read Hebrews 2.16 again, then I'll jump over to James with you. For because Jesus suffered when being tempted, proven, and tried, he is able to help me when I am being tempted, proven, and tried. Now look at James 1. So my brothers, you counted all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And the word for trials is that same word. For you know that the testing or the tempting and the proving and the trying of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The writer of Hebrews tells you, and he'll tell us a little bit later on, I have a perfect mediator. And if you remember those five things I wrote down for you, he's my perfect substitution. He is perfectly identified with me. He offers me a perfect deliverance, a perfect mediation. Today, whatever trial you face, and and you will, Every trial I face, at the base of it, at the soul and the heart of who I am, my savior, my leader, my prince, the author and finisher of my faith knows at the very depths what it means soulishly to be tested and tried and longs to, awaits my pleading for intercession. Because that's when when the writer of Hebrews says, when you face trials and tests and refinements, He says, pray for wisdom. And Jesus is our wisdom. So when I say, dear God, please give me wisdom, there is an automatic intercession that takes place on your behalf. the, The enemy, remember this, past tense, has been rendered powerless. All he can do is deceive you by taking captive the temptation. That's why at the onset of tests and trials, we must say, God, I need wisdom. And in that moment, a perfect mediator, one who is perfectly identified with me, begins to, through wisdom, help me to see things the way God sees them rather than being deceived the way Moses was when he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. Or the way David was when he went to her or called her to his apartment rather than saying no. And all of a sudden I am interceded on by G- or on behalf of through Jesus. Gentlemen, at the, the entirety of this day, the creator and sustainer of the universe literally sits because the Bible tells us he is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for you to say, hey, I need wisdom. Because if you don't, the enemy gets one hook in you and begins to deceive you. He cannot have you, but if he can get your sights off of the direction of wisdom, then all he does is keep moving you a little further and further along. And those of you who have children, who are grown up or even adult children, you've watched it happen in some of your children who have suffered. Because you've seen from a distance a child look a direction they shouldn't have looked. And rather than come to you and say, could you help me understand this? Because you, you've tried before to by force make them understand and it hadn't worked. And so you say, help me understand. And if they don't say, help me understand, you watch them and they keep being deceived and they keep being deceived. And all the while, all they had to do, do was say, dad, and you would intercede. Nobody could have them. They couldn't take them from you, but they could deceive them 
out of relationship. You get me? You understand what I'm talking about? And the same thing will happen to you today. If you do not understand that your mediator who knew exactly what it was to walk the way you walk. You say, how could he? I mean, it's the 21st century because at the depths of who you are, things have not changed since the first century. Our temptations may have different forms, but what they do to our soul remains the same. They drive us away from our ultimate prize, which is Jesus. And he's ready to intercede for you. So let me, um, let me read a little bit in chapter three and, and then... And then just because you guys listen so slow, we're not going to get to the second part. So verse one, so my holy brothers, well, watch how, watch how his description has changed about you, even as we progress. Now you're not just brothers and sisters, you are holy brothers and sisters. He is walking through your identification. You're a sanctified, holy brother who share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle. He is the the, the one who came before and brought and one who stands and mediates for your confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in the house of God. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, when the writer of Hebrews says that, that puts him in high company. I mean, just huge, because that puts him far and away above the writer of the first five books of the the Old Testament. And and for him to say that, especially to a particular audience, I mean, that's, I'm not even going to try to say a joke about it. I mean, that's sort of like, it it, it just, it's, I don't, I can't, it's it's like, you know, never mind. It's just, he's way above. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in the house of God as a servant. He testified to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, he is faithful over the house of God as a son, and we are his house. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, and that is an if that assumes, and in all likelihood, you will. Now, I'm going to keep reading for just a second because we've got a few minutes. Verse seven, because we're gonna come back to where we will be next week if the Lord gets us back here is verse seven all the way through chapter four, verse 16. And in fact, I'll just quit reading. I'll set it up for you. I completely believe in the sovereignty of God. And the way I've used this phrase is I believe God's running the show. I really do. But when I read the scriptures and I see, for instance, Moses, who will refer to Moses, who the Lord said, I want you to speak to a rock and he hit it. And in a moment, Moses was prohibited from moving into the promised land, but not from finishing the call God had on his life. David, David, because of many things in his life, was not able to build the temple, but he was able to prepare the next generation to finish the work of the Lord. When we begin to read through the rest of chapter three and chapter four, and we look at the children of Israel and what happened in this, this refusal of rest. What, what haunts me, I'll use that word even though you may not like it. What, what haunts me is that there's the possibility as you read the scripture, and you're going to have to work through this in your own theology, that you could take a few steps, and I'll use this, I'll use this word carefully. They may not necessarily keep you from the best, but it may have you finish your race a different way. Now, I'll try to go into more depth with you as we go through next week. 
But when he uses the word rest here, let me give you something to meditate on for the week. I'll read you a definition for the word rest because he uses it. Let me count it real quick. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. In those few verses, he'll use the word rest 12 times. And it's not the word for Sabbath. It is a word that means a place where God fixes his presence. Get this. I know you guys are smart and you just remember it, but for the rest of us who need to write it down. The word for rest is a place where God fixes his presence and it is a state of being settled. There's another place where he uses this word and it's in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us there is a place of rest for us that has been known and created since the foundation of the world. But if you are not careful, you could miss it. And there's a huge warning here and it has nothing to do with losing your salvation, but it has everything to do with not gaining the greatest joy of your salvation. Now be, be careful, I'm done. But for some of you who've got, you know, you're like, I'm such a failure. If you knew my past, you would just, you'd probably doubt Jesus could love me. I'm telling you, gentlemen, you're alive because there's still something greater you do not know. And I still believe you will not breathe your last until you see the glory of God this side of heaven. He wants you to see because then there's nothing left and he'll take you home to a greater glory. Let's pray together. Whoever, you know, you guys who brought this whiteboard up, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, I'll use it next week. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you that at this moment, my savior, my king, my prince, my leader, the author and perfecter of my faith, our faith, sits at your right hand, inclining his ear, interceding for me, mediating for me. In each of us, in our own way, before we leave this morning, pray for wisdom. That the moment we hit the ground running today, in the face of trials and tests, our mediator, who knows exactly what it's like, we pray that that wisdom from him would come upon us, and we would begin to see things the way you see them. I thank you that in all of my failures that will accompany me today, your grace is rich and powerful. And I pray that we would be men who, by the very virtue of the way we're pushing in after Jesus, even in the midst of difficult times, those around us at work and at home would see something is at work in us and changing us. Whether it's the way we behave immediately or the way we reconcile behavior that we've had, that we would demonstrate Jesus today. May these men preach well as they go to work. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That, that poem I read you last week is up here on the stage.